Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing monsters. From the British Isles to the Ozarks, monsters from the Celtic past are roaming around the 21st century. We will get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. So what monsters would the Celts recognize in today's Ozarks? I think there's a really good chance they would recognize a lot of them from the old gods to mischievous supernatural beasts to monsters of a more mortal kind. And there are a few familiar faces right here in the Ozarks and yeah, much to my dismay, we're looking at you, Howler. We will return to what might be hiding in the dark or under your bed. But first, we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to the Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Substack, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book Dark Ozarks The Spooklight. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and at the website alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal history and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. We have monsters. monsters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is, it is a, it is, a, it is a, obviously it's an exciting, it's a fun subject. Um, the Ozarks have uh, an interesting number of monsters and an interesting number of those monsters do appear to have ties back to the old world. I, I'm not sure where exactly we want to 
start, there's a lot to a lot to play with in our compendium of uh, compendium of critters. Well, I mean, it, it we just got through uh, St. Patrick's Day, so perhaps we start with leprechauns. <laughs> oh, the the thing that really jumps out to me. Besides the Lucky Charms cereal, um, which I just had some. That was how I celebrated my St. Patty's Day. I had Lucky Charms cereal. <laughs> there you go. But I think that the I think that the 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 motif I'm gonna to refer to it as a motif initially before we dig into the actual lore, but the motif of the Irish leprechaun is likely the most accessible idea for pop culture and for for everyday people who are not familiar with Irish folklore or Irish mythology uh, or the the larger Celtic mindset. And honestly, we have the cereal to thank for that. Uh, we all grew up with with the, the Lucky Charms Leprechaun <laughs> is a uh, you know, a, a backdoor into eating some sort of extremely strange processed grain cereal with small dehydrated marshmallows that really bears no resemblance to anything Irish. But it's still the idea. Uh, leprechauns guard the pot of gold. They're they're tricky, uh, quote unquote, mischievous, and uh, they're 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 also interesting. Because they they clearly have fairy qualities, but on the upside, even the caricatures of leprechauns do not fit the uh, the Tinkerbell stereotype. The, the 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 leprechaun is is male. He's quirky. Um, he he acts very differently than than the the classic idea of fairies, and yet he has these weird magical powers, which clearly are fey. So I think even in the, just the, the, uh, the, the subconscious and just in the popular culture mindset as well, the, there is a hint of getting our minds shifted around the magical fey <clears throat> of which Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the, the Celtic, uh, subcultures that and and the Celtic cultures that that ultimately influenced the Appalachian folklore and the and the Ozarks folklore. It's it's being hinted at. Yes, yes, and and something a lot of people probably aren't aware of is that going back into the lore, it's not as clear whether the leprechaun is the mischievous but rather harmless creature or whether there's uh, more of a um, malevolent uh, side to him um, and, and, and that, that's oh, that, go ahead. I was just gonna say that's very appropriate <clears throat> when you begin to play in the the pantheon of Irish mythology is that these uh, these beings are 
extremely ambiguous in their uh, presentation. And sometimes they are malicious and you, you don't really ever know which one you're going to get. Very true. Um, and I guess um, a side <laughs> note too is that most a lot of people would associate with the leprechaun the phrase the luck of the Irish. Um, yeah. Mainly from advertising and so <laughs> forth. But that actually has nothing to do with the Irish lore and actually comes out of the West California. Uh, and it was actually kind of an insult um, um, that uh, the, the I Irish immigrants usually were down on their luck, et cetera. So having the luck of the Irish kind of meant you were down and out and not that you really were lucky or that the, the friendly elf brought luck <laughs> very very true now there's there's an interesting side that i want to jump into because it does have a tie to some of our reports in in the ozarks uh currently we can't disclose location source etc but it is a, a first person source uh, of a, a an individual who saw not quote unquote a leprechaun but in the in the old world there is a, a, a an entire subcategory of supernatural beings that appear as old men. Yes. And and appear as small old men. And if you mm -hmm. listen to the reports, um uh, and and <clears throat> I think I find it really interesting because we have uh, folklore on this subject that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet we relegate that into the category of fairy tale, folklore, mm -hmm. bedtime story. What did someone imagine might be cool or creepy or interesting to put in their story? Let's, uh, let's have a little old magic man who's literally little, like anywhere from a few inches tall to just a, maybe a, foot or two tall and mm -hmm. but clearly not um not a what we would think of as a as a small person this is right differently proportioned uh typically with and also uh, very notably appearing old now there are mm -hmm. they that appear radiant and beautiful and ageless uh, think Galadriel from Lord of the Rings. But right. <clears throat> then this is clearly very different. And sometimes, and they're often in, uh, particularly in English and Scottish lore, uh, they are oftentimes referred to as elves, uh, as, a, mm -hmm. as an elf man, as a, as sometimes as an elf woman. I remember one report referencing being on a hillside and just having the sense that everything changed and couldn't quite describe how or explain how it changed, but they simply knew it had changed. And they saw these this couple. It was a you know a diminutive, uh, elderly couple dressed in strange clothes, studying him. Mm. And then they were gone. And <clears throat> oftentimes they are they're quizzical. They're they seem to be very curious. They seem to have some sort of power. Uh, and yeah. that that also seems to be the um, 
the 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 experience that many times when someone encounters something of this nature, they know they're in the presence of a being that has some sort of gravitas and some sort of power that is otherworldly. It's very oftentimes unsettling in rare instances that it occurs. And we had, I know we can't disclose a lot about it because it's still very private, but uh, at least one report of an individual seeing one of these beings in the Ozarks when they least yes. expected. Yes. Um, and so, um, and I, I think since we can't give out too much, I think it's important <laughs> to note that these things are not just relegated to centuries old lore and lands <clears throat> that these kind of uh, experiences do happen uh, actually around the world uh, yeah. in this day and, and really with pretty much all of the types of monsters that we're going to talk about today. Yes, and and I suppose the leprechaun might, uh, <clears throat> or the little people, or whatever you want to call them, uh, might take issue with us putting in the monster category, but it is an otherworldly uh, and out-of-place experience, and <clears throat> as is noted, all we can really say on the, this particular report is it is credible. Yes. Uh, and that you guys get to take our word for it. Um, but it is. And there are, and we've talked about this at length in a couple of other episodes, but uh, a number of, uh, of First Nation peoples, the Cherokee come to mind, have long histories of interacting with, with beings of this sort. And it is a good lead in. And it is also very... Um, <clears throat> very mind-bending i think if you try to logic it out because these uh these beings these individuals whatever it is that they are they are corporeal they're they're not a ghost they're 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 not a phantom they leave footprints uh they they uh they they walk through dirt and they uh they walk through in the case of the the boot prints of my grandfather's um garage lately mm -hmm. uh boot prints hobnail boot prints in the sawdust uh they <clears throat> sometimes interact they seem very human-like in some categories in terms of of um experiencing human-like emotions and curiosity and interest um sometimes appearing to be afraid sometimes very much not appearing to be afraid and mm -hmm that they exist slightly out of out of shift with time. Yes, yes. And so um, a little in column A, a little in column B, that uh, something of the other realm of something supernatural as well as something uh, physical and tied at least part of the time tied to the, the physical world. And something that is also notable that I, that I find very fascinating, but also a little bit unsettling, um, they, they seem to in some way be tied to a type of time or place. Uh, often when someone reports seeing one, uh, seeing one of these people, they appear, they're, they're described as having very human-like clothing, only a very old-fashioned 
Yes, like out of time. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, almost like seeing someone in period clothing, but in miniature. And <clears throat> there is additionally <laughs> a, a strange obsession with shoes. Yes, yes. Known to steal, steal shoes, replace them. Make new ones. Clothes. Lots of, lots of, we could do probably an entire episode on European shoe lore, but it is very eye-opening when you begin to collect and sometimes receive first-person, credible first-person stories of this nature. It really begins to shift one's perspective about uh, not only just folklore, but about fairy tales in general. Mm-hmm begins that just the the shifting process and for better or for worse it really begins to change the way that you look at the world around you that's true and, and actually i was just thinking as you were talking about the shoe lore um actually not very far from my house there is a um telephone wire that goes across the street that um as long as I can remember years and years and years, someone has always tied two shoes together and thrown over that wire. And it's not the same shoes and, they, and it's always a new looking pair of shoes. They, they never get very old. Um, and I've chuckled to myself before, I'm wondering if that is a warding off of overcomes or something <laughs> or an offering to them, I'm not sure which. <laughs> Or very, um, <laughs> it would be interesting if, if some of the more modern um, practical jokes, urban legends and customs not only have a basis in more ancient lore, but in some cases might actually act as sacrificial offerings. Yeah, I've always, I've, I've wondered about this because it goes back decades. Um, always in the same spot uh and so someone someone keeps sacrificing shoes so there's a there's a there's a leprechaun-esque um entity and on our notes it's way at the back on page 38 uh but i, I want to get your thoughts on the red cap primarily because he appears to be scottish and <laughs> And as 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 appropriately holds with uh, supernatural beings of Scottish lore, everything and we do mean everything will try to kill you. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, Scotland's kind of like Australia. It is. <laughs> it it really is. Um, only only colder, and I'm only good colder. with that. <laughs> <A> damper. <laughs> And I'm I'm good with that. I really am. Um, great tea. Mm-hmm. Good whiskey. Excellent shortbread. We are known for a few things. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, mm. but I I, mean, um, I I find it I find it interesting. You know the the red cap is is referred to as a murderous goblin. 
Yes. Um, well, and, and the red cap is because he soaks his cap in the blood of victims. Um, I mean, that, that's cheery. And, and, you know, he's described with prominent teeth, skinny fingers, uh, talons like eagles, fiery red eyes. Um, you know, all of these things, to be perfectly honest, it evokes vampire uh, lore to me. Um, That's a good point. <laughs> in, in, in the depiction. Um and um but then he has some traits that are almost like a dragon lore i mean um inhabits ruined castles um um and um it, it just um Oh, and then, of course, he can be driven away with uh, scripture or brandishing a crucifix um, and will vanish into flames. I mean, if that doesn't evoke Brom Stoker, I don't know what does. That is very true. And that's <clears throat> another thing is, is we are beginning to delve into Celtic um, beings and beasties that there there is an, an innate shapeshifter quality about many of these beings in terms of how they manifest themselves they could appear short they could appear tall they could appear giants they could appear as tiny winged beings and for all we know it might be manifestations of the same thing exactly and, and uh, a parallel a modern parallel would be actually in uh, ghost hunting um, with shadow men, particularly, and apparitions to a degree anyway. Uh, um, a lot of lore as well as a lot of people encountering uh, entities now in real time will discuss that either their change their formal change from one time to another or during an experience or that their form will be exaggerated um the shadow men uh, are a good example that often they appear extremely tall um taller than human form um and no one really knows why um and and actually at the John Wise house in Joplin, there's video that was caught of a shadow man walking um, through the parlor and down the hallway. And where he comes, it, where it, the top of the shadow man comes in relation to the the uh, the doorways measuring, it would put him at just about nine feet tall. Wow. That so, is so I, you know, we don't call them monsters and, and or, or these kind of not necessarily in the same sense of these grotesque characters and grotesque in the classical sense of the word. Um, but we still talk about that same kind of behavior and appearance shifting um, in, in ways that 
we would not associate with traditional lore. Agreed on that. And <clears throat> in in that regard, it's it's interesting. There there are some very corporeal shape-shifting stories and lore, and some of our beasties tonight will 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 cross over into that realm. But in others, it is non-corporeal in the sense that these beings seem to exist mm, only peripherally associated with our dimension. And, right. and, and can and do manifest themselves in very strange ways. Um, in some cases, as you mentioned, um, elongated in uh, mm -hmm. a way that, that honestly, it's easy to find very unsettling. Not necessarily appearing uh, at the time in the manner they did at death, but instead, um, maybe a younger version of themselves or a stylized version. Um, so th this notion of shifting appearance um, comes through in various ways in a lot of different aspects of these things. But I think the I think the red cat where the leprechaun could be debated about is a is he a true monster? I think red cap fits more square in that um in that category and he's referred to as a goblin but i mean in some ways you know it it could be a type of fae it could be almost a vampire or or just a shapeshifter changeling true uh, it to me is fascinating because we do there there is a great deal of ambiguity associated with the the nature of of many of these are they yes. and and of course we we ask ourselves are they good are they bad are they and for for individuals and i know and it, it's easy to get focused on the you know the box with the, the cereal box with the leprechaun on it and go oh that's funny uh, mm -hmm. but you and i have both had experiences where say an individual has asked us for to come in for an investigation, et cetera, uh, perhaps for poltergeist activity, uh, for for odd things happening, and they're genuinely scared. And they're like, "What is here? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, it does it does it mean us harm?" And so you shift a little bit into that perspective, and those questions have resonated. I, probably for all of uh, for as long as human beings have been interacting with phenomena that appears sentient, sometimes corporeal, sometimes non-corporeal, and we're wondering: Is it aware of us? Does it like us? Does it not like us? Does it mean us ill will? Is it there for positive reasons? Does it just not care? Uh, these are these are genuine questions that we have people ask us. So it's for me. Even though it's easy to sometimes dismiss, you know, oh, that's a fairy tale. That's funny. The the human need for answers when you're being presented with this sort of thing is very real, and I respect that. Yes, definitely. Uh, I agree. Um, 
something that I've just recalled here too um, with REDCap is that, um, which is kind of interesting with that notion of talking about people asking for help is that um, he was believed, they're believed to have been basically a red cap at any ruined tower um, so that um, basically one of, one of these beings would be at any abandoned ruined castle or tower which kind of opens the possibility of the the urban explorer going into the abandoned house, the abandoned, you know, um, mansion and having a less than friendly encounter with something is it a little more universal that there is a red cap kind of entity at abandoned how abandoned places <clears throat> or abandoned buildings i think that's a, i think that's a really interesting observation and it really does begin to shift one's perspective a little bit and this is this began really when you know i started i started the process of opening myself up to the potentiality of for example um, the presence of elementals, the the idea that uh, that that some hauntings and some sentient hauntings aren't ghosts, right? And 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 that is very much in my experience a, a possibility, and and I, I think I've encountered a few of those where um, yes, you are dealing with a sentient presence, but it's not human never was um but we're not talking of you know the evil you know uh demonic sort it's it's more related to place and that would make sense to me another interesting aspect of ray cap is that um he can have magical powers just right. flat out um including um as written by none other than Sir Walter Scott um, in uh, the uh, Minstrel uh, Strelzy of the Scottish border. He uh, reports a ballad um, that originally was written by John Layden uh, called Lord Solace, in which Redcap grants his master safety against weapons and lives in a chest secured by three strong padlocks which almost gives it a genie in the bottle quality. It does. It does. There, there is the um, playing with fire aspect of that as well. The idea of uh, mm -hmm. the conjuring on a leash that often does not turn out so well. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, Red Cap could literally be one of those that is hard to put in a box that it is it spirit is it fey is it vampire is it shapeshifter uh is it uh, magical it may be yes it may be yes and uh, i i i'm gonna I want, I want your opinion on this a certain aspect of uh Red cap lore may have also been colored 
by English chroniclers attempting to sortie into an inhospitable Scotland and getting killed. Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's possible, although the lore seems to be Scottish itself, but I, I could certainly see um, the English uh, kind of buying all into it and yet, you know, yet these horrible things um, as almost a to engender sympathy for their uh, for their losses. I mean, it's possible, um, and it, or at least be spun as far as perhaps Ray Cap re represents fighting the Scots. Period. That's true. <laughs> very very true. And with a uh, with a uh, with a reputation like that, certainly, it's. Uh... Good psychological warfare on the side of the Scots to uh, to promote that. That's true. That's true. Um, I, I wanted to just also on page thirty nine. I wanted to go into just a little bit about Bargast. I find the Bargast really, really powerful and fascinating. And with I would say direct ties to the Ozarks. That I guess really jumped out to me. Yeah. I think first of all, should we say with with Red Cap? I mean, there are there are things that are experienced in the Ozarks that have qualities that are incorporated into Red Cap, such as the appearance and 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 that kind of thing. Um, and there there are cases that seem to be um, thought form, etc. I mean, if you want to get literal with it. Um, being driven away um, by scripture and the crucifix, you know, the exorcist case happened here. Um, I mean, so there are so many things that different stories that could be tied to that, but Bargast, I think, definitely can. 100%. And <clears throat> the, the Bargast is uh, Northern English, particularly Yorkshire, Folklore of uh, what's described as a goblin dog, uh, a monstrous goblin dog. And anybody, I think practically would, would recognize this is this is a, a great spectral hound. But it in the case of the the Yorkshire lore, it is is quite specific. And it does begin to cross those. It, it, it existed in intersection between ghost, omen, goblin, elf. Uh, there, there's, there, there's a lot, it's a lot of things at once. Yes, and in, in an interesting note that on the Northern English side, um, Bargast basically is the, um, beginnings of the word ghost correct um and uh, and actually then a, a hybrid with that um with the german you end up with things like poltergeist etc um so this is sort of the or actually the origin word of 
or ghost that we're so familiar with. Now, in, on the on the Scottish side, it was booger for boger. Yeah. A mm -hmm. boger was the ghost. And for for folks here in the Ozarks or in North America, et cetera, who are not terribly familiar with York and the city of York and Yorkshire, uh, we're, we're talking about a uh, an area in northeast England uh, near the Scottish, near Scotland, obviously. And uh, during, I mean, up until, well, the, the from about, I'm going to spitball here, but beginning with the Viking invasions in around 8900, uh, it was a Norse kingdom. And, yes, at times, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, <laughs> immediately prior to the Battle of Hastings, it was a Norse kingdom until King Henry uh, and the English army defeated the Vikings mm -hmm. uh, and then sustained a, a two-week forced march uh, from Yorkshire to the south of England, just in time to lose the Battle of Hastings to William the Conqueror. Yes, and in that march is, is attributed to a factor in the battle. It is because they were worn out when they got there and had and and the 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 reality was that they had just sustained a, an extraordinary victory in terms of defeating. Uh, the Norse and York, mm -hmm. and even to this day, in terms of uh, you know influence, uh, Nordic influence or Viking influence uh, in uh, the the way that the English language is used, uh, the the way that the uh, the Yorkshire dialect developed, and and many elements of the history are are heavily influenced uh, in that in that particular region and so as a result of that i find it really interesting and i wonder uh how much the bar guest may also have been influenced by norse and and specifically viking lore as well as you know it tales that of which we might be unfamiliar but it reminds me of the uh you know odin's wild hunt it reminds me of yeah. fenrir and especially notable in warrior cultures shifting away from from some of the later years of of peasant cultures being uh, mm, impacted by plague but instead warrior cultures who were surrounded by and and uh, uh, you know constantly exposed to the reality of death the idea of a death omen seems to be particularly appropriate. Yes, and that, that certainly comes out in the, in the Ozarks, but, and even in some of the incarnations of the stories um, from Yorkshire, um, that you, you see that uh, there's, a, there's a legend of the Troller's Gill where uh, a man ventures forth to the horde gill of the limestone hill in order to summon and confront the Vargas in an act of ritual magic. And so uh, basically something that, you know, a beast that um, apparently they felt needed to be dealt with that harshly. The, uh, the man's life was, was discovered soon. 
He did not have the mojo he was hoping he had. No. And, uh, uh, and, and there's also a story of the bar guests entering the city of York occasionally, and it preys on lone travelers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there's other places in the area bearing its name associated with with it and then in uh, the 1870s there's a story of a shape-shifting bar guest who said to li live near Darlington and said to take the form of a headless man who would vanish in flames a headless uh, lady a white cat a rabbit a dog or a black dog um <laughs> And, you know, this is really kind of getting um, two tales in the Ozarks of what are commonly called booger dogs, but um, mm. definitely uh, a lot of similarity. And, of course, booger dogs uh, are also known in Scottish shore. And often in the Ozarks, uh, as with the bar guests, they can be omens of death. Um, and in the stories here, um, there are quite a few that come out of the Civil War um, of omens of death with the with the phantom dog or phantom hog um, that can also be headless. Um, it can. It can. And in the in the aspect of the death omen, it does seem to have some sort of incredible power it, it does um and and certainly at least during and i imagine in yorkshire too that uh, the idea of the death omen probably took root um during some of the battles i mean in, in if you're not familiar you, you had battles going back to the norse invasions you had with the normans you the War of the Roses, <laughs> you know, um, it is. It is. York saw a lot of uh, of war and sacking, um, including by the the Scots during the fight for independence in the early 1300s. Uh, so, time and again, uh, it's not surprising that they would have uh, death omen uh, stories, but and. In the Ozarks, they kind of came out pretty much the same way during the Civil War. Soldiers would say that seeing a phantom hound or hog, and they would be described as larger than natural, often headless. And if it was headless, it, it was even more ominous as a death omen, um, that they would die in battle. Um, and... Uh, um, it would happened enough that it was given credence. And there, there's, there's several things that I, that really come to mind on on these subjects. One, and and of course we're, to a degree, we're contributing to this uh, pop culture milieu with, with with our own publications, uh, you know, online. But I, wa I watch a lot of videos on this subject, as you know, because I send them to you. Yes. And, <laughs> and then uh, I watch them. Yeah. And, and and I love it. I love the the genre. I love the interest. I love digging into these sorts of things. 
But something that I have really noted in the uh, proliferation of this information in say the past uh, 15 years mm -hmm. is that there is a, mm, often because, because of the nature of the internet, now we were fortunate enough to be able to do long format and mm -hmm. dig into these things. And I, and I love long format podcasts uh, across the board, but many of the things that we have on the internet, uh, if, if it's an article, it's often 1200 words or less. If it's a, sometimes it's just a short paragraph and you scroll through images. Uh, oftentimes if it's a video, it's, introductory videos, 10 minutes long, uh, the top 10 fill in the blank, uh, you know, so devoting about one minute, oftentimes with some fun, unique, uh, contemporary graphics, contemporary images, sometimes AI art, which is a little odd, um, not typically a fan of that, but this, this, uh, sort of cottage industry of, uh, lore, internet lore, or lore that is being presented on the internet that's about a million miles wide and about an inch thick. And there's, there, it, it isn't, I don't, I'm not saying that it's meaning to, but one of the end results is it gives the impression of superficiality. It gives the impression that there's little interesting tidbits, but you're not getting the sense of this incredibly rich tapestry of history. Uh, when we're talking about the bar guests, when we're talking about the red cap, we are, of course, contemplating the possibility of deep paranormal realities, first of all, um, and then and, and individuals' experiences. But beyond that, we are we're talking, as, as you noted in, the, in Yorkshire, uh, and its relationship to the bar guests and how history in Yorkshire may may have contributed or in some cases manifested uh, this death omen that we're talking about a a tragic and compelling um, tapestry of human experience that is easily 1500 if not 2000 if not ultimately perhaps even 3000 years old generation after generation having these incredible and extraordinary and heartbreaking and devastating experiences of death and loss and uh, attempt to regain territory, attempt to take territory, uh, the individuals caught in the, in the, 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 the in-between spaces of all of that. And it's very difficult to convey that in a 10 minute video. It, it really is. Um, uh, and in the, the flip side is it can also give the sense that, that, that really it's either superficial or you, you now have the compendium of knowledge. Um, yes. And, and neither is, is accurate. Um, and, um, thought that just kind of came to mind is um and what your thought on it the uh the uh bar guest is an example you know we're, we're getting into territory of monsters that are at least representative of animals and 
in the Ozarks, particularly early on, um, the the use of monsters as you know animals as quote monsters so to speak was really put to use um in forming the image of the ozarks and particularly the Oz arkansas ozarks mm -hmm. i think that's fascinating um, yeah what what were your thoughts on on that and and well, I, I think that there is something really powerful. Uh, we we erroneously refer to North America as the New World. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, that's not accurate. <clears throat> and I I believe that many of the uh, of the first settlers to cross the Mississippi and come into uh, Arkansas, to come into Missouri, to come into the Ozarks, were presented with a, it, certainly if they were able and willing uh, to listen, they were presented with that tapestry. They were presented with that richness of depth of thousands of years of reality, thousands of years of story, of, of, a, of a type of narrative that was told, if not told to them uh, in uh, the tongues of First Nation peoples, it was told to them in the earth, it was told to them in the trees, it was told to them in the water, that there were things here, there, were, mm -hmm. there was a past here that much like, in, even in, in a more grand way, much like the Celts having this extraordinary past, but no written word to write it down. Uh, the first uh, white settlers to come into the Ozarks were observing the realities of this extraordinary past, but without any books. There was, there was no libraries. There were, there were no books. In some cases, there were barely any people other than Osage raiding parties. Uh, to 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 say anything about this space, but we know that there were thousands of years of individuals um, uh, living and dying uh, with their uh, with their own unique cultures and stories in these lands, and we don't know those. We don't know the words, but I think about the settlers coming into these spaces. Um, into the into the spaces where back in those days you would have had a, a million stars visible at night over you you would have had uh old growth the the original forests uh which in many cases were pine uh these these grand stands of timber the likes of which it's very difficult for us to wrap our heads around and the depth of stories that were whispered in in the roots and the water and the trees and the stone that said there were also those stories that were being embodied and encapsulated by animals uh beasts um that beasties that in some cases for some of our our uh, early american forebears were of a type that had not been encountered before and were were very terrifying in some cases you you think about 
especially um, early English colonists coming into the New World and, and coming from, from England, uh, which certainly with its centuries of war and et cetera, certain, you know, and, and issues certainly had its, its own set of, uh, uh, of complex dangers, but coming into a land that had, for example, rattlesnakes, uh, cottonmouths, uh, you get into a bit further south, um, alligators, you get into, uh, you know, animals like bison, you get into um, uh, bears, there, there's a mass compendium of, of animals that honestly, we take for granted, we're not that freaked out by because we're accustomed to them. But these were, in many cases, alien beings for the for the people who were first coming into the region uh, from Europe. And that in and of itself just engenders a sense of fear, a sense of wonder, uh, possibly a sense of majesty, certainly a sense of introspection, and also a sense of how the heck do I survive this? Because there is no infrastructure to back me up if anything goes wrong. Right. And then, uh, and then frankly, uh, writers kind of reinforced that. Um, and, and we don't think about that as, as far as how you know, these kind of lore stories get going, but in the, you know, in the first half of the 1800s, particularly the 1830s, the 1860s, uh, popular uh, broadsheets magazine, so to speak, of the time that we would equate to, you know, our favorite TV shows today, probably, um, capitalized on the ruggedness of the area and these kind of stories and um, the leading sort of sport, uh, sporting and hunting magazine of the day was actually... Um, the, the spirit of the times and it was actually written by a fella um he was a newspaper man and lawyer from batesville arkansas um which, which is kind of ironic because it was the most popular uh such magazine in the country written in arkansas and he capitalized on the image of the wilderness and the beasties in arkansas um and his name was Pete Whetstone, and um, uh, they uh, he portrayed the area so well in that way that people avoided settling there for a longer period of time. Um, and then um, another fellow, Thomas Thorpe, he was a uh, from um, Louisiana. He wrote a story, the the Big Bear of Arkansas. Um, and that story basically went viral as almost fan fiction of, of, um, Whetstones and basically portrayed the, the large, uh, hunting story about the largest bear that ever lived being in Arkansas. And, um, they actually credit these kinds of stories with, people settling in Arkansas later than surrounding states. So it's kind of interesting how those things happen. Um, and so you still have 
wild animal lore, you know, uh, hogs, uh, bears, mountain lions. You get a lot of that that really, I think, comes back from from this kind of tradition. I I definitely find it really, really fascinating. It is at a crucial moment in the development of the state of Arkansas. Uh, because we're we're just dealing with that that time right prior and then after statehood, when mm -hmm. it had reached the uh, I think fifty thousand a population of fifty thousand I think was the the tipper to allow I, a, I think so yeah uh, a, a a state to be entered into the union <clears throat> and the um, the the it to me it is really really fascinating it does deal heavily with beasts as you already mentioned we're we're talking about um bear hunting we're talking about wild hogs in particular as well as panthers those are the mm -hmm. the, the big three whether whether they were as large as reported um whether they were as fierce as reported etc is you know specific to to an anecdote and specific to a, a, a an individual story but there's a really fascinating push pull from a from a sociocultural standpoint that is going on here as arkansas is moving into statehood because we have these outlandish stories and and i think to some degree it's fair uh, to say that there are some some basis we're dealing with on a, an extremely rugged frontier uh, at this at this juncture point, and we're we're also dealing with a mm, not contradictory, but I would say um, geography within conflict. We have very rugged mountains. We have um, some navigable river. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of natural resources that are suddenly available for exploitation. And then uh, prior to things like river management and draining, we have an enormous amount of swampland and no effective cure for malaria. So there are, there are uh, a lot of factors going in. And I think from the 1840s into the 1860s, we see, you know, you, you look at uh, the, the war, you look at the Civil War in, the, in Arkansas, you look at uh, some of the, the successful and then in some cases very unsuccessful riverboat uh, expeditions and campaigns in association with Arkansas. You look at the, the differences between the fighting in lowland, lowland Arkansas and the flatland, the Delta, as opposed to fighting up in the mountains up here around Key Ridge, there's yeah. there we're dealing with very disparate regions that just happen to be in close proximity. True, true, um, and it, it, it's sort of an aside that I find kind of amusing is that the sort of the um, voice of reason in in all of this these tales and this and these stories that they got put out ultimately belong to none other than albert pike of, <laughs> <laughs> of, of trying to you know pull people off the ceiling and say now now uh, 
you know, Arkansas is not, you know, uh, that 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 wild, that that dangerous. And here's the beauty of it. Um, um, you know, considering other things he's known for, you, you you're just not expecting that. But what well, Albert Albert Pike being uh, one of our favorite um, Ozarks adjacent personalities from the 19th century. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he did live in Arkansas and, and actually taught school there. Um, and and um, darn near got killed there. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, then went on to other notoriety that, that uh, you don't have to get into. <laughs> Fair, fair. I am, um, I'm, I'm, uh, Pike, Pike is one of, one of my heroes that I hold at arm's length. Yeah, he's a fascinating character, um, that, that there, there were, you know, you know, admirable things that in his life and other things you just kind of go, wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I, that, something that, on, on this overall subject that I, I do find particularly fascinating. We have this with these uh, 19th century publications, we have this motif of Arkansas that has developed. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Backwoods, bear hunting, hillbillies. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> there, in some cases, these uh, stories are or the the origin of these stories are native, i.e., individuals. The individuals who are writing them are from Arkansas. They are in Arkansas. They they have found a a publication, you know, a a, a means of fame and uh, comparative fortune through publication in this. And in, in other cases, the the writers may only have been peripherally involved with Arkansas. Perhaps they passed through. Perhaps they were originally from Arkansas, but they moved to Chicago, and then begin publication and it becomes its own the mm, it, at the time of printing a a contemporary folklore develops mm -hmm. of the nature of the state and it is at once uh, frontier-like and heroic but at the same time it can a canon often is extremely demeaning and stereotypical. Yes, yes. Um, I, I think more so to those outside the region, stereotyping, um, where I think in the region, more of it was taken tongue in cheek or could be. Um, now, one aspect I wanted to touch on is that these tall tales and um, of early Arkansas and everything, they focus a lot on bears, hogs, and wild cats. Um, now, of course, bears are not uh, native in thousands of years to the British Isles, um, etc. But uh, lore about monstrous cat beings actually are you know something that comes out of lore from the from the isles and the celts yes it does uh goblin cats witch cats uh hell cats uh not 
not the F6F built by Grumman, 1942. Ah, uh, the um, preceded by the Wildcat, um, preceded by and the not Buffalo the car, and not the car. No, uh, but these are. This is something that dates back extraordinarily. Now we have, uh, we have um, endured the notoriety of. Uh, the explosion and pro proliferation of um, fiery comments in regards to the existence or non-existence of large cats in the Ozarks and particularly yep. what color they may or may not be. I'll leave it at that. <sighs> but uh, I, I vote for I vote for transparent. I think we should write about transparent cats. That's <laughs> joking. <laughs> I I'm I'm okay with that. Uh, but it, it it's there there is something now I, I think an interesting thing just from a psychological emotional spiritual standpoint there is something instantly evocative about the idea of a large supernatural cat it is i mean it's i mean certainly you know uh phantom hounds certainly have that that mystique but i think with with these cats it, it seems to be more almost a, a little more vicious version if that's possible agreed and there there is the certainly for anybody who's familiar with cats and has ever tried to uh, tangle with one that wasn't happy um stuck in a box needing a bath needing to go to the vet uh these types of things <laughs> Uh, it Pretty doesn't much take, doesn't want to do. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take very much cat to inflict an enormous amount of damage. Yes, and then you take one that is very large, and it is terrifying. Uh, but yes, and then also just the idea of um, which cats too, I think, is very interesting. Um, aside from the typical Halloween motif of a, which is familiar being a black cat, um, it, it's more innate than that. Um, and in some ways, to me, the controversy about whether or not there could be Black Panthers in our midst um is almost uh reminiscent of a witchy overtone that it has to be you know it cannot be it's magical if it is um a little tongue-in-cheek there but it's the idea of just the visceral reactions that people have to the notion i think akin to saying you have a large witch cat <laughs> it, it is it is and I, I i feel that really brings up just a just an interesting observation because in a mm, perhaps in a different dimensional timeline uh individuals would be having the conversation about whether or not Black Panthers existed in the Ozarks. 
in a in a very reasoned sort of well they could be there they might not be there fine whatever um that's not what happens there are no. intense emotions and intense personal investment on both sides oftentimes oftentimes uh the there there are no um animals of this nature in this region category are um uh, as zealous if not more zealous for their cause than than the individuals who oftentimes you know are the are the are the folks rural folks farming folks who are going y'all can believe what you want to but i know what i saw exactly aside from accounts from law enforcement etc you know mm -hmm. and so there's there's a there is a even and i find it incredibly fascinating i think it's an important motif in terms of observing human nature even when you strip uh the, the the traditions of religion out of something you you still find human beings acting religiously and zealously for a cause that they believe in that i mean that's that's true um and ironically most of most of the people with such strong opinions don't seem to have a personal stake in the matter either i mean or even as personal experience um which i find a little baffling but um, and I, I, I also, and this comes back to our, you know, many, many of the individuals who've reached out to Dark Ozarks, et cetera, or commented and, and we've, you know, opened up dialogue through the page that uh, a lot of everyday folks who are being argued with in regards to the, the existence of, and I'll just say it, the existence of Black Panthers in the Ozarks, uh, the, the folks who've seen them, they're, not dissimilar to the individuals that we've talked to who have had paranormal experiences, genuine, incredible paranormal experiences. They're like, I don't, I didn't care until it happened to me. I'm not trying to argue with anyone. I'm just telling you what I experienced, or I'm just telling you what I saw. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and I think it's a good illustration of if anyone's confused by why there's such a rich history of lore, particularly in Scotland, of witch cats, um, just that process of that dialogue makes it understandable of how you end up with lore like that. Um, you That you have a very real creature that is very dangerous, that can be very vicious uh, on a level that uh, other animal attacks do not have the same level of uh, mutilation, et cetera, and ascribing something more than a corporeal animal uh, to it. Uh, as being extremely unsettling, even more so. And watching the debate about Panthers and the Ozarks, I, I can see, you know, I, I can just imagine how all of lore developed over time in the past regarding large cats and witches and so forth. Um, because it is rather amazing. <laughs>
it it is and and i think that on a on a on a sort of a psychosocial quality there there is a lot of momentum and a lot of force and likely from a from an aspect of genetic memory or ancestral memory there is a lot of momentum in in the whole in this entire genre that's that's true i, th I think i think you hit the nail on the head there i i am i'm personally fascinated by by witch cat stories and Me just too. that that conflation it is also interesting just putting yourself into the the mindset uh, just a little bit of the mindset your uh what's the word for it your um many so so first of all uh many of the the <clears throat> settlers coming into the ozarks were scotch irish mm -hmm. uh, and they were coming from with a an incredibly rich tradition of witch cats yeah and and witch cat lore as well as wards against witch cats and understanding of witch cats as shifters and all of these things and they're coming into a region that unlike scotland and northern ireland which had cats but did not have large cats they're, they are suddenly coming into a region. You can debate the melanistic color or non-melanistic color all you want to, but they are coming into a region in which there were very large cats um, living and hunting. So, yes. Yeah, so if, if, if domesticated size cats are an issue, <laughs> now one that's five times their size or so, uh, oh my, you know, I can, yeah, I, I agree with you. I can see that. And you brought up a, a point too there that it's the, the, the shifter aspect of it. Um, I wanted to go into a little more as far as there are a lot of, of uh, tales in the Ozarks actually that fall into that category. Um, and actually, I think more over time, uh, there seem to be more occurring now than even in, you know, 150, 200 years ago, it seems. And uh, it's <clears throat> in part kind of, you know, it comes out of this tradition, also comes out of Native American traditions, but you have um, lore and experiences are being brought to us, et cetera, involving shape-shifting, whether it um, is a, a human form or a, a human appearance with animal characteristics or shifting between a human form and an animal form. Um, and sometimes it's related to magic and sometimes not as clearly. Uh, and I, I find that interesting. I find it interesting that there seems to be more accounts of it now than in the past. What are your thoughts? Oh, um, I think it's that one is complicated. You know, I think one of the things we, we have established is that there's an enormous amount of ancestral memory 
that that even outweighs ancestral lore. And first of all, I think it's incredibly powerful. Uh, it's it's difficult to track because, but it is something that that seems to happen where even if the lore is lost, if the stories are lost over a generation, that the somehow the gravitas of the importance of a thing continues mm -hmm. to resonate in, in the following generations. And so someone, for example, of Scottish or Irish or Scots-Irish ancestry, uh, who might not even know that they have that ancestry, could be exposed to a thing and somehow say, I don't understand why, but this is incredibly important to me. I am personally invested in the thing and I can't explain why. Uh, that, could that's, that's true. And then, but, and then bumping up against Native American lore that has similar um, characteristics. Yes, um, and, and I think in that kind of situation, the lore from both traditions kind of validates the other as far as, oh, this kind this type of thing is not just unique in one tradition or another and so it gives it more credence i think as as far as um okay there's something to it yes i in the way i i can the way i tend to see this or i'm seeing this at the moment is like looking into a reflection of the past, but the glass is shattered. You see all of these different fragments and bits and pieces and certain things, certain things that you see may, may feel very important. Other things may simply not make any sense. Uh, usually a great place to go uh, is into the original lore, if at all possible, finding the original um, the original documentation that's certainly a lot easier to do uh, with our uh, European ancestry because of places like Trinity College, um, etc. That there, there are that there's uh, documented bits and pieces that that really do go deep. But you know, in in the case of, of individuals with, uh, with with Native American ancestry, connecting with uh, your tribe, learning your tribe's history, connecting, going to the, for example, in many cases around here, finding where your tribe is 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 headquartered in in Oklahoma, uh, talking to individuals who have made it of their vested interest to learn uh, and preserve the language, to learn and preserve the customs, the cultures, and learn the history and understand the history. All of these mm -hmm. things are are very very important in the process. Uh, to see and find what resonates because a lot of times a thing will resonate and we subconsciously or even unconsciously associate it. We know it's important. There's something about the thing. It might be a theme. It might be an image. It might be uh, a bit of song that we just innately connect with and we don't know why. And I think in many cases it is that ancestral memory. Uh, it is that connection with our past and our, our past thousands of generations past. And we know it's important, but we can't explain why. It's also within that space really easy, especially with the Internet, to just get, again, those fragments, those pieces. And 
we might associate ourselves with that, but not fully be able to contextualize the association. And so we're we're suddenly, in essence, basing our personality off of a very fragmented image. And we become very personally invested and in some cases hostile in terms of defending something that we don't fully understand. I think that's I think that's a, a fair assessment. Um, Personal experience. I've I've only done it like repeatedly. <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> yeah, once or twice. Most mostly with my Celtic ancestry. <laughs> um, I don't know about you. I want to talk about headless horsemen. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a fun topic. Uh, headless beasts, headless phantom beasts of any kind are are incredibly fun. Um, the 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 reality that we can tie this back to the Dullahan is mm -hmm. fascinating to me. Yes, and uh, and again, it, it headlessness is death omen. Um, also, a lot of shades of the Banshee um, or similarities. But what I find, it's interesting that the Dullahan can't, has more control over who dies, I think, or picking and choosing. Um, and uh, it really is the genesis of Sleepy Hollow which everyone's familiar with. <laughs> and I I love it. So I'm I'm going to brag on myself for just a moment because that's the thing I do. Uh, I <laughs> am very proud of the fact that I've been a fan of the Dalahan for probably close to 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Dalahan is a bit more commonplace on the internet today than it was 25 years ago. So let's just say I dug pretty deep to find Dullahan lore in, uh, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s and, uh, and succeeded. There is something very, certainly very um, spectral and powerful and malevolent and terrifying and resonant about the image of the Dullahan, even before you know his origins, because the the Dullahan is, and I find this interesting. Technically, the Dullahan is a fairy, mm -hmm. uh, and that for people who are not familiar with the broad realities of Irish fairyland, they are not prepared for something like the Dullahan. Uh, he's a headless rider on a black horse, carrying his own head under his arm. Which, in the head, is basically how he guides himself, because <laughs> he can see. Um, and, you know, uses a human spine as a whip, um, yeah. dragging a wagon in some versions, um, that is full of, you know, it's basically a funeral wagon. Um with candles and skulls and boats of the wheels are made from thigh bones and covered with worm chewed pall or dried human skin. Um, 
you know him when he's coming, so to speak. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, you do. And, <laughs> and this is um, over certainly the the coach aspect, uh, the coach of the Vach, the aspect of the Dalachan is, in my opinion, something that began to really be developed in the in the 16th 17th centuries in ireland mm -hmm. um and and at the time would have been a contemporary retelling but the when when you begin to wrap your head around the the fact that the the dalhan is also considered to be the embodiment of Kramdu, uh the the celtic god of death yes this the the gravitas of this being takes an extraordinary turn Yes, well, in some ways, he reminds me of the Baron in Voodoo. Um, Agreed. Agreed. And um, because he is, he's a lot uh, he, similar. He, he, oh, function, he functions as the ferryman. Yes, yes. Um, and you do have to wonder if, if the added element with the coach and, and sort of that very uh, grotesque um, adornments uh, uh, really didn't come out of the Black Plague, the Black Death. Certainly it's possible. I think yeah. they're... they're it, to me, were very common. To me, it, it is... Uh, an there, there are interesting qualities to this because they're... Obviously, by the 1600s, 1700s, beginning in places, you know, in, in not beginning in places, the, the, the English influence, the British influence in, in Ireland, uh, in Dublin and Waterford, etc., making these cities mm, into, at the time, contemporary modern English cities with... Uh, the trappings thereof and the carriages and the the death customs and all of that but although we do not have archaeological evidence of chariots in ireland we do have an incredibly rich body of lore associated with war chariots horse-drawn wagons of sort uh that that were associated with the great epic cycles and consequently, by attachment associated with the gods, and so the to me that it's it, interesting qualities that are all feeding into this of a of a, of a great mythological the mythological embodiment of death, um, and something on wheels. Yes, yes, I agreed and. Um, ironically, and and of course, it also the headlessness to me is also symbolic of the Celts more generally because um, oh, they've fair. been known to um, decapitate their enemies and a veneration of the severed head. Yes, uh, <laughs> the <laughs> extraordinary. Um, focus on the on the severed head in Celtic and traditional Celtic 
belief structures that uh, both as a as a as an act of war and then also veneration of one's ancestors that mm -hmm. uh, again speaks to the the dual dual nature and the duality of the of the Celtic cosmology. And I think now would be just a good time to to insert just for a moment the ancient gods of the Celts in the British Isles as the um, overarching influence of Christianity spread. Those gods sh shifted in terms of the the people, the 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 everyday people. For example, of Ireland, we'll we'll just speak with on Ireland specifically in this case. The the people of Ireland adopted Christianity, but they did not throw away the old gods. The the old gods changed, and they they are referred to as the Tuatha Dé Danann, um, the the people of the goddess Danu. They are referred to as the good people, uh, the fair, fair folk, the fae, and they they are the 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 lesser known Irish mythology of which we to a degree only have bits and pieces of uh, through the cycles, mm -hmm. we have more than we think we have because the ancient gods are what later become the fairy tales. In, yes, in, in, in a large sense, that's very true. Um, they, it's just a matter of retelling in different ways. Um, um, and they are very much with us. And they are very much with uh, the, the idea of the, the headless phantom and the yes. headless specter is with us in the Ozarks as well. It is in, in many locations. One just over here on Highway 13. There's a there's an yes. old legend of a, of a of a headless man who walks old Highway 13, um, but as was noted, he walked Highway 13 before they changed Highway 13. So, the the new grades in the road may have meant that he went elsewhere, or that he's walking in an area that isn't a road now. Exactly, or or at least not visible from the road, um, mm -hmm. and um, and there's there's several reasons. Aside from just the settlers bringing lore, um, the Osage, who were the dominant Native American tribe in in the region, um, often decapitated their enemies. Um, uh, we're so used to Western movies and TV giving us that scalping was the was the uh, trophy of choice but not necessarily um and those age were want to uh leave heads in a pile as warnings as well so which works it, which is worse but also very uh akin to ancient celtic practices as we have been told um, oh, it, it is it is which i really find rather endearing yeah <laughs> okay, remind me not to fall asleep absolutely around. FYI, I'm creepier than I looked. Um, 
speaking of my genetic, the momentum of my genetic memory um, or ancestral <laughs> memory. It is. Oh, but there, there is something about a pile of severed heads or a, a head on a pike that definitely gets one's attention uh, and really sends a very clear message to uh, one's opposition. Yes, and in the Ozarks, that 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 has occurred various times, but prominently again during the Civil War, um, and not just by those fight uh, Native Americans fighting. Um, there were a number of soldiers on both sides that would decapitate, um, and um, but. Um, you know, and there's se there's several stories of that. There's the headless uh, phantom that uh, roams outside Humansville, um, that is supposed to be of a, a unknown, unidentified soldier. Um, there is the he headless phantom in a villa, which. Yeah whose story is much akin to the head on the pike on London Bridge as anything else. Um, and in that circumstance, the the town militia, who uh, they uh, Avila was pro-union, um, although there were a number of slaveholders there, they they were they advocated staying in the union. And they uh, they've been attacked so many times by bushwhackers that they um, they formulated a plan to protect the town that was offensive rather than de defensive as was often used up to that point. And ultimately their, their, their uh, self-defense plan was adopted throughout Missouri during the war. Um, right. And basically they went out and hunted bushwhackers. And in this particular instance, they came across the decomposing body of, a bushwhacker that apparently they had shot and not realized at some point and as a warning hung his head from either an apple tree or osage uh, orange tree uh along the road entering town as a warning to other bushwhackers right that and uh you know a warning like that does send a very clear message it, it really does. A rotting skull does tend to send a message. And, and then I go, oh, go ahead. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, what, you know, um, throughout the world and certainly at the time of Halloween, uh, as well as Dia de los Muertos, that the, the image of the skull is just it is a incredibly powerful motif and it is it just it's obviously it speaks to our mortality it it's i suppose it's you know it's the the one part of our uh, of our skeletal structure that most closely resembles us and life it there is something innately attracting but also repulsive and frightening and interesting and compelling all at once with the imagery yeah. of the skull very true and 
just the, you know, using the phrase imagery of the skull made me think of Demian's Pond um, in Stone yes. County, um, where, uh, again, uh, townsfolk um, ambushed uh, bushwhackers who had stolen cattle after they had killed several men in town uh, in Galena, Missouri. Um, and they had, the bushwhackers had camped at the pond, um, became known as Dead Man's Pond, and they slaughtered them to the last man, and the story went that the bodies were rolled into the pond, and over time, skulls were, you know, basically uh, would either uh, appear or were dredged up. But I always find it interesting. I've, I've yet to hear a rendering of the story that said other bones were found. Right. <clears throat> it's it always was, just the skulls. It's the skulls. And which, which makes you wonder if they if they were beheaded at the time. Well, that is that does bring up a good question. Um, or the skulls were just the most creepy and iconic, and they managed to make it into the story but either way it is it is a powerful aspect and of course there's a lot of hauntings associated with dead man's pond yes and you know understandably so oh but, yeah uh, but it does it does make you wonder uh certainly does have that headless um motif to the story almost to a, a fault um Let's see. Good talk about vampires. Vampires are always fun. Uh, <laughs> unless of course you're a victim of the vampires, and then it's less fun. <laughs> now, here's here is a, here's an aspect that I I do find really interesting. Well, we can. It's kind of I was going to say draw a line, but it's it's more of a complex yarn diagram stretching from location to location and sometimes intersecting because vampires, vampire mythology, vampire lore, all of this has, it, it is beyond monolithic in modern culture. It is instantly recognizable in the 20th century and 20th and 20th and now 21st century uh, cinema it is just extraordinarily massive and so much so that certain names uh, are, are just associated with, with vampire mythology, even as a modern myth. Um, names like Anne Rice, uh, Lestat, Bella Lugosi, um, honestly, Christopher Lee, these are, you know, Hammer Horror films. Uh, all of this ties together. I'm expressly not mentioning a couple, but the 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 progenitor of all of this is is Bram Stoker, and Bram, is, of course, cited his his sources with the uh, the Romanian uh, Vlad the Impaler as its origin and there's an enormous amount of focus on that but stoker was irish and irish and scottish folklore contain what although they're not called vampires 
contain a very rich lore of vampiric like fae or um you know vampiric death spirits that you know spirits of the dead as opposed to spirits of the fae that in some cases are not that dissimilar from deer woman true very true had not thought of that but that's true of, of thinking of the deer do i i take it yeah the 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 deer do and and um the avatar there's yeah there there's these <laughs> uh well there, there's a couple um you know we've got there there are some claims that the Aratach, uh in in Irish folklore quote unquote a chieftain dwarf who could not be killed he would come up from his grave every night um drink the blood of his enemies and no matter how many times he got killed he'd just show back up it's uh, it's like a recurring nightmare mm -hmm. uh he the only way to kill the Aurtach, uh was with a sword made of you uh, of you wood and that is really interesting in and of itself obviously it's basically a wooden stake but mm -hmm. the the you um for those of you who are confused it's y e u uh has a, an extraordinary history as uh, as a magical tree not dissimilar yeah. to the hawthorn true so i mean it's um so, so that magical power ostensibly would be what made using it different than another means of killing him so that he wasn't resurrected um but again it it, it just very similar to the idea of the wooden stake um and um that um also that he was buried upside down right had to be buried upside down which um often uh, in medieval graves uh, that they find evidence that someone was killed or thought to be a vampire one of the sort of precautions taken would often be to bury the person upside down correct correct and <clears throat> going over to, to the dead to do uh, there is that crossover with Dear Woman. In this case, this is a, a young woman who is um, horribly abused by the the man that she is given to mm -hmm. as husband. Not the man that she wants to marry, uh, the man that her father forces her to marry. He mm -hmm. and when in and really it, now this is this is a, a very dark but interesting story to me obviously it speaks of um you know the some of the darkest aspects of domestic abuse but mm -hmm. we're we're if you if you just uh strictly follow the lines of the story we're we're dealing with a um a rich aristocracy who takes a poor girl as his wife and then sub forces her to submit to ritualistic abuse 
because he's draining yeah. her blood. And that is a common motif in that that resonates throughout the story because ultimately he kills her. Yes. Which again is a motif that is used time and again in vampire fiction and movies, etc. It is. Uh, but in this case, uh, and, and to me, this really speaks of the uh, um, dark mischievousness and the turn of fate that you see in the uh, uh, in the Tuatha de Danann, mm -hmm. because it is certainly implied that the 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 husband is uh, is mortal. He's doing horrible things but he's mortal uh his mm -hmm. young wife dies he is already off with these other women she is buried in a pauper's grave nobody her family doesn't care because they got paid uh yeah. there's some really really horrible aspect to this story and then uh she returns as the dead could do and seeks her revenge first on her father and then on her husband. Mm -hmm. And then it, it's balanced with, you know, that, um, yes, yeah, she she comes back with revenge, but in part of the telling of the story is, uh, ironically, that her lost love actually is loyal to her, visits her grave every day, professes his love, um, and praying for her return. But that, unfortunately, is not what she responded to she responded to the revenge which of course delves into the darker aspects of vampire lore it does and there to me there's something very obviously there's there's a, a really satisfying aspect of vengeance and justice uh vigilante justice in essence in this uh in this case um there there is lore in the idea that if you don't want a person like this to come back, you pile stones on their grave. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a couple of different turns of this particular story. One was that she's the first Derek to do it. And so they didn't know to pile stones on her grave. Now that does right. imply the possibility that this could be, this could happen again with different people. Um, mm -hmm. So that's creepy. Um, but there is also uh, a twist in the fact that that they did pile the stones and her her lover removes the stones to allow her to return. Yes, that um, basically his love blinded him to the reality yeah. of what she had become. Yes. Um, and, and, and then she forms an insatiable desire for blood. Yes. And, and then pretty much we are full-blown vampire lore. Um, yes, we are. We, we, <laughs> we have arrived. And, and, and also the fact that there's, there's not really a, a conclusion to the story. After she uh, seeks her revenge, uh, she enjoyed the blood so much that she really just goes on an interminable hunt. Yes. And to and, which, you know, theoretically continue to this day. Exactly. Which again, just it is rife with modern vampire lore of, of the, you know, these eternal beings and 
existing basically forever. Um, and so it does make you wonder if, if nothing else that Stoker didn't uh, have the seeds of the idea from these tales. And then of course, finding Vlad the Impaler and Romania just made it myster more mysterious for the English, his English audience. And I think in, in, in a way, I think one reason that the that Stoker's version has endured is because he used he did use real places. He used elements of reality that I think became very intriguing for people because it made it feel like it's more plausible. Um, and it I does. think that's part of the genius of of his telling and why it's still the standard. I, I very much concur with that because it is it does feel grounded in the reality of the age. Exactly. And so um, I, I think it's very likely that these these stories were the initial uh, impetus, but um, through research, because he, he spent years actually researching it before um, and writing it. It was like seven, eight years. So you know, he found the perfect, you know, um, combination of facts and lore to create the story. Um, I can, that makes me feel better about the amount of time that it takes for me to write a novel. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as I have one sitting <laughs> that, that I've been working on for years. Um, but uh, again, for our Ozarks connection, there's vampire lore in the Ozarks. Um, I mean, there's even in the, in the internet age, you can find it related to Springfield and supposedly in the tunnels uh, of Jordan Creek in downtown Springfield. Um, and there, there certainly are credible firsthand accounts of odd things that go on there um, of a either a ritualistic or at least an organized uh, basis. But, and we've told this uh, on, on, on a video in the past, there, there is a lore of a vampire uh, buried in a cemetery in I believe Phelps County, uh, that was a, I believe a, mine, a coal miner and he was yeah. an albino, which yeah. of course feeds into, you know, one of the urban legend motifs. But he really was an albino and a miner, and but the lore has grown up that he he was a, a vampire. It has, it has, and there's I, I believe if memory serves, that's the 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 uh, the cemetery with the cage. Yes, there is a cage, and um, and and all kinds of stories come up around those those. Uh, kinds of graves that ultimately they, they serve two purposes. One one was just to uh, deter looters and the second was to um, deter reanimators, you know, so that the body wouldn't be taken to, you know, medical school to, to be dissected. Uh, we're looking at you, Professor McDowell. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the, the grotesque nature of that bit of history 
when that uh, the the remnants of that history get presented onto the internet without context, it is very easy for individuals to erroneously jump to the conclusion, oh my gosh, the cage is there to keep somebody in. It must be a witch's grave. It must be a vampire's grave. It must be this. It must be that. No, it's there to keep looters out. Yeah. To protect the grave. Yeah. To simply protect the grave. And sometimes that uh, is a little disappointing to people because they really wanted it to be the thing. Um, and, I, and I think psychologically, we, we, we see these things and we think we're the only one who's ever found it. And we want ourselves to be the person to have discovered the mystery of the, of the, the vampire or, you know, whatever. Uh, and I think we see something similar with the, uh, the obsession over purported witches' graves throughout the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. and uh, agreed. Agreed. It, and you get that. You get that in a lot of places. But um, it, it, I think it's just sort of that almost forbidden subject titillation factor on witches' mm -hmm. graves. Uh, because and, usually the reason they identify a grave uh, as a witch's grave it is pretty mundane, usually. <laughs> right, right. Usually a, a bit of uh, uh, of inscription that to our uh, modern eyes seems somehow mystical or we might uh, think of it as a spell, but in the, in the 19th century was actually a very common uh, Victorian era inscription to invite the uh, the cemetery goer, the graveyard goer, uh, to be introspective and to contemplate building a better life now rather than the hereafter. Yes, and 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 that even the idea of inviting them to do that seems a little askance now. But at the time, people spent time in cemeteries, uh, had picnics in cemeteries. They were a place of introspection and reflection. So, I mean, it would make, it made perfect sense at the time. Uh, and, and, and a place to eat your fried chicken and let the kids play. That's right. Let's go visit grandma and have fried chicken. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, <laughs> In our incredibly modern world that we're so we, we just like to pat ourselves on the back that we're so um, contextually developed. We, we're, you know, don't realize that we've been heavily influenced by, um, you know, 40 years of horror movies instead of uh, a long ancestral <laughs> past of respect. Exactly. <laughs> You know, one thing I want to touch on that is a little askance, but from from the lore, but maybe not, mm -hmm. are um, giant birds. Yes. And flying humanoids. Um, um, you know. Um, I I'm quite fascinated by both. There apparently there there is a and I, I don't know a lot about but in, in the materials um, reference to tale out of basically Texas County Texas and Howell County Missouri of giant birds the uh, gigantesis <laughs> um, 
six-foot birds, um, which seems to be a bit of a tall tale. Um, but certainly there, you know, could have been a rather large bird. And um, I don't know if, if you see a vulture up close there, they certainly can have a wingspan of that or more. So uh, I found that interesting. Then the late 20th century go to, it's a pterosaur um, stories. Um, yeah. And I don't know, I, I, I wonder if the idea of the pterosaur is comes out of the fascination with dinosaurs, which became very prevalent in mid 20th century. Or is it somehow a refashioning of Phoenix um, stories? The Phoenix stories or Thunderbird lore. Or, or Thunderbird, yeah. Um, there, there's a lot tying into this. And of course, the uh, the lore about pterosaurs or pterodactyls is its own cryptid genre. Mm -hmm. uh, both here, interestingly enough, uh, sightings in what is is interestingly our our uh, you know specific parallel latitude that seems to be a long running stretch of weirdness. The thirty eighth parallel, yes. <laughs> which runs right through the northern Ozarks. Yes. And they're, they're from UFO sightings to Bigfoot sightings to pterodactyl uh, rumors to weird things. And certainly there's the, the tie-in uh, with the, with the uh, Native American lore of the Thunderbird and uh, and and I'm I'm gonna throw the um, the Piasa bird in there as well. I mean, it's I think so. There, there's some interesting tie-in. What we do know is that uh, the 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 Mississippian slash Cahokian mound builder people did share ties with uh, with Middle American, Mesoamerican, Central American peoples, and so we can we can draw some comparisons there and <clears throat> certainly from uh thunderbird lore of uh, uh of the great plains to uh the the feathered winged serpent quetzalcoatl uh to other mesoamerican deities that were associated with the sky these sky god sky animal motifs are extremely powerful and powerful enough that whether we understand the ancient culture or not, they do resonate with us yes. on a on a on a very visceral level. Well, I I, I think so. I mean, and, and you mentioned the Piazza bird um, at the Mississippi, and and you know just just contemplating um, what all happened for them to put the painting on the cliff. Right. It, 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 that just that process resonates. So 
it, it does make you wonder um, what it is about the about this motif other than it, it's kind of like the big cats I mean it's something very I mean very out of the ordinary potentially very dangerous could pick you up and <laughs> fly off with you uh, a kind of danger that is totally unsettling it is and and I would say archetypal as well yes but I find it also interesting that it, it's kind of morphed and and again it, it kind of goes not not entirely just with the internet age and with the internet but say in the last 20 to 30 years it we've developed a two things one is a motif of now it's not just a huge bird, but a flying humanoid. Correct. Um, and you started getting these accounts actually over large cities. Yes. To begin with. <laughs> um, and Chicago comes to mind. Chicago may have been one of the first places, but you had a lot of them um, where people would spot what looked like a flying man. Um, sometimes with wings, sometimes not. Um, and then um, there there have been accounts even in Kansas, the Kansas City area, the St. Louis area. We're getting, uh, you know, again, we're kind of kind of coming down towards the thirty eighth parallel. Um, there's there's been accounts actually. Uh, one account that I heard, but I've never been to, able to track down the original source, supposedly out of the Joplin area. There's one out of the Branson area. Um, and uh, I just find it interesting and, and um, particularly the ones that where they're weaned. Um, the, the other prong of this is sort of the Mothman um, motif. Which starts in the sixties at Pleasant, uh, Pleasant, um, West Virginia, and that has you know sort of a definite origin story, um, but it, it's not necessarily purely humanoid, um, but similar type of experience. And that also, that type of creature has been reported elsewhere as well. Um, I kind of wonder, are, are our encounters with whatever large flying things are out there, potentially, um, now being clouded by our media-driven <laughs> idea of monsters i would say yes i think that is a very i think that's a fair uh conjecture that <laughs> <laughs> that, that certainly the um the the power um of mothman has has reached across the nation uh if not further than that and reached a long ways from 1966 in pleasant point west virginia that at, at the same time that doesn't 
you know, the, the existence of the, the fact that we as human beings are able to absorb elements of pop culture and then in some way, shape or form inadvertently reconstitute it in our own fiction um, and sometimes believe our own fiction does not take away from the reality that some of this phenomena also appears to be occurring separately. Yes, I mean, um, I, I think it's, you know, potentially fair to say that, you know, some of these at least may be something large in the sky, whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. um, and as far as I know, California uh, condors haven't migrated to the middle of the continent, so I'm not sure. That we, we know of. Uh, it's just, it is odd to say the least. The um the 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 story from uh, a, fl a flying humanoid outside of branson for me was particularly fascinating it's uh, it's documented on ultimateunexplained.com and what what especially caught my eye is that the individuals who say that they saw this um uh, their their video is on youtube it was featured on destination america and as they tell it, they journeyed into the woods near Turkey Creek outside of Branson, which is a mile from my house. Right. And ironically, ironically, I've heard the same version of this story happening, supposedly happening at Turkey Creek in Joplin. <laughs> There's now for people who are unfamiliar, there are a number of Turkey Creeks in the Ozarks. Yes. Uh, so so, so, you know, it makes you wonder, is, is it the same event being told is happening in other places or not? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I don't either. Um, just And this is probably based just on our time. This is probably our last one to, to cover for this episode. But um, yeah. the, the article mentions... Um, several individuals uh they sharing that they went into the woods near turkey creek um i i love the description it's a, a stream in the missouri ozarks that extends down into arkansas uh the guys found a strange cave and shortly afterward they heard sounds in the trees it was a whooshing sound that brought them face to face with a winged creature that looked half human, half bird. One man said it sounded almost like a freight train. And of course it did. And it was coming straight at them as they fled. The creature also relented. Interesting choice of words. Um, and, uh, and if you check out the, the, the article itself, there's even a YouTube video reenacting their experience. Which I watched. <laughs> You watched? I, I did not. I, I, I did get that part. It's only a few minutes long. I, I recommend watching it. And uh, interestingly enough, the the individuals playing the the people in the article are actually the people in the article playing themselves, reenacting all of it. Interesting. Yes. <laughs> the play is the thing. So it's. Uh, <laughs> I I'm I am personally fascinated. I'm on one hand I find the article this particular bit of information really bemusing because it's in my own backyard. And I guarantee you you could poll pretty much everybody other than me after this afternoon uh in uh the, the Turkey Creek community and nobody would know what we're talking about. That's and that's probably accurate. Um you know, and 
but here's my theory. I, I think someone has a, a jet pack. <laughs> and and a, you and, know, a... and and they they're playing pranks and you know apparently all over southern Missouri and and I've heard this version a similar version you know of McKenna Sea area in St. Louis so someone's getting around with a jet pack is is my personal theory um and I want one but uh <laughs> I do too uh, with one caveat, and that is that I get a bird suit to go with it. Someone might shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> and probably for good reason. <laughs> well, that that is a, a dive into some of the monster lore. And, and the, the irony there is that there's quite a bit more. Um, yes, yes, there is. But I'm, I'm proposing... I, I'm proposing a uh, a part two a little bit later in the uh, in the season. I, I think I think that I think that we can definitely do that. Um, in the meantime, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com, and stay tuned for an announcement on darkosarts.com for something coming soon. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Darkos Arts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing seances and spiritualism. Catch the Darkos Arts podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or just about any podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Darkos Arts. <laughs>